This podcast is supported by Merge. Planning on adding integrations to your product in 2024? Merge can help. Merge's API allows your developers to integrate once to offer hundreds of product integrations across key software categories. Merge maintains your integrations for you and provides tooling to make it easy for your customer success team to manage your integrations without engineering. Go to merge.dev slash hardfork to learn more about Merge and to get $5,000 off your choice of an annual plan. Do I know how to play chess? I do not. Does it matter? It does not. But I now know what the Sicilian defense is, because like a lot of people these days, my favorite new show is The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Start your clock. It's about a young chess prodigy named Beth. It's the 1960s, and she wants to be the world's greatest chess player, which mostly means crushing one male opponent after another. That's certainly satisfying, and she rocks. But the character I was most drawn to was not Beth. It was her adoptive mother, Alma. Though I'm no longer a wife, except by a legal fiction, I believe I can learn to be a mother. Alma is played by Mariel Heller. It's a breakout role for her, but she was already a big name off the screen. Heller directed Tom Hanks in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant in Can You Ever Forgive Me? All three actors got Oscar nominations, but neither film got a Best Director nod. That was a mistake, as is underestimating Mariel Heller. Can you talk a little bit why you called your production company Defiant by Nature? I think being a female director, a question I get asked a lot that feels like veiled sexism is people will say, how did you know to trust your voice? <laughs> how did you know that you could do this job? You know, some things in that line. And my answer is often the same, which is, I never knew I shouldn't, first of all, which part of it I think is growing up in the Bay Area and we're taught to be individuals and that you should stand out in a crowd that's valued over fitting in. But also I had great parents. I had a great family. Nobody ever told me that I should stop raising my hand in class or that I should become, as a girl, that I should somehow become less confident. I just, I didn't get the memo was sort of my joke that I would say when people would ask me that. Yeah, so you called that define. Define is also, define is sometimes seen as a negative word. I think it's a wonderful word. Yeah, I was always seen as defiant. And I did know that as a kid. It just wasn't something that was stamped out of me. I often had problems in school where I would stand up to teachers or I would believe that something they were saying was wrong and I would make some kind of a big stand about it because that's just how I grew up. And so I did always know that I had this kind of defiant streak, that I didn't like authority. I didn't believe grownups were inherently more right than kids. And so it's kind of been always a part of my personality, but it became clearer to me because I've had to reflect on myself because people constantly ask me how I got where I am today. How did you become such a confident director? And I, I've had to kind of look back and go, I guess that's weird that I'm that defiant, but that's who I am. Yeah. It's so interesting how we use words like bossy. I was called bossy a lot. Oh, yeah. Or difficult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, difficult and unlikable, not, not more unlikable because I learned how to be funny in order to get rid of that one. Right. Difficult is always my favorite. I'm like, yes, I am difficult. Yes, that is correct. Like, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) 
Unlikable. I mean, I've talked about this a lot, but it's such a problematic word when we're talking about characters. And I think people have gotten the memo that now you really shouldn't say that about a female character. But for so long, the characters I wanted to write in movies, people would say, well, aren't you worried that she's unlikable? And I just would always say, were we worried that Tony Soprano was unlikable? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or were we worried about, I mean, the most interesting characters in any film or TV that happen to be male. We never ask if we're worried that they're unlikable, that they murder people or do terrible things. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your work. You have this role in this Netflix drama, The Queen's Gamma, which is about a chess prodigy who upends the very male-dominated world of competitive chess. Talk about how you wanted to get back into this. You had been making movies and said you were tired of <laughs> directing for a minute. Like, it sounds like I'm exhausted. I'll take this role. Yeah, I, I wasn't seeking out an acting part. And and that's the worst thing I could say to any actor, because the worst part about acting is that you spend 98% of your time trying to get a job. And that was part of why I stopped acting was because I was feeling so stifled by the process and by the fact that I- at every step of the way. Yeah. And that I, I wasn't in control of when I got to do my art. I wasn't in control of when I got to be creative. And so I started writing really as an antidote to that. So- I feel bad saying that this role just fell into my lap because I know how every actor in the yeah. world will feel about that, which is like, you fucking asshole. Um, <laughs> you can say it on this. I can't, I, I never can. know. I feel like every actor in the world will be like, I hate you. I cannot believe that. That's an incredible role and you just had it handed to you. But the truth is, I did. I'm friends with Scott Frank. I had played a really small part in a movie he made called A Walk Among the Tombstones. As a lark, I went in and kind of did this little part for him. And it got cut out of the movie totally. But his wife, Jennifer, was on set that day and she looked at him and went, oh, she's actually a really good actor. So he, from that point on, said, I'm going to make you act for me. And his intention was not to have me be in this huge of a part in this project. I was actually going to be a different part. And there was an actress cast as this part who fell out. What was the part? What was your other part? I was going to play her biological mother. Oh, interesting. And I thought that'll be fun. I'll, I'll go do a little acting part. It'll be fun. And then the actress who was to play Alma fell out. And Scott called me and said, I want you to come play this part. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Netflix number, I know how casting works. Netflix is never going to let you cast me. No one's going to let you do that. Why would they let you do that? They can't even look at my acting reel. There's nothing to look at. And he was like, oh, I already talked to everybody. They're all fine with it. I mean, he has a lot of trust in him as a director. The fact that he could say that he wanted to cast me and they all somehow said that was okay. So what did you think of the character of Alma Wheatley? She's a 1960s housewife. She is an alcoholic. She hasn't made it in her area of passion, which is playing the piano, music. Right. She's defined by her marriage. How did you relate to this character? It could have gone a certain way because there's been, that character's been around the block quite a bit, but you have, you'd made it very different. I found her to be so tragic in such a sweet and sad way. I I definitely connected to the fact that she could have had a different life if she had been born in a different time, if she had not been a housewife, if she had not been a 50s and 60s housewife who got stuck in a bad marriage. She had these dreams of being a pianist, of being an artist. She sort of has this artistic soul and she could have done so many things. She could have just had such a different life and she has this sort of passion inside of her, which you get to see a little glimmer of when she has her lover in Mexico. But um, there's something so tamped down about her that just made me sad. And 
I loved her. I found her really fascinating. And I liked that she wasn't a stereotype. Based on the writing, like, there was no one logline about this character. She was tragic, but not sad. Rebullient at the same time. She's tragic, but she also kind of perks back up. She's like a wilted flower who sees Beth's talent and sees her going after this gift that she has. And it reminds her that she's alive. And then she gets a taste of freedom, which is beautiful. And I also, I felt nervous about the fact that she was supposed to be drunk sometimes and was a drinker because as a director, it's a huge pet peeve when people play drunk poorly or on drugs poorly. It, It just, it's, it's something that I feel like. Yeah, they we, make it into a big thing. It's usually uh, a very usually big dramatic awful. choice. Yeah. And then when I find actors who can do it really well, like Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant, like their drunk scenes in Can You Ever Forgive Me are some of my favorite <laughs> scenes because they're really good at it. And it's so subtle. And it's so the nuanced work that goes into doing that well. I don't know. I just think it's really hard. So that scared me about the part, but also excited me. IndieWire called you the best TV drunk. (laughs) Oh, trust me. I've been using that quote with everyone I know. I've been called by some TV's best drunk. TV's best drunk. (laughs) Um, What was really interesting about this entire show is you expect things to go south and they don't. Yeah. You expect the alcoholism to be like suddenly an accident, suddenly an embarrassment, suddenly. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it does a little bit, but it's sort of more real to life where it doesn't quite go off all the rails in the way it often does in drama. It's true. And a lot of people have told me that they, when they first met my character in the show, they were really nervous about where it was going or that I was going to be horribly abusive or that it was going to be some awful relationship. And it's interesting because I I remember asking Scott that same question of like, in these first scenes, when you meet me, how do you want the audience to feel. And he never would fully answer that question. So I think I'm sort of also trying, not trying to overly project how you're supposed to feel. Like I just tried to get out of my head about those sort of director questions of like, okay, so how should the audience feel about this scene? And instead I just tried to play the sort of nervousness of those scenes and the excitement and the sort of awkwardness and of meeting somebody and inviting them into your home and, and, I think it kind of makes people feel unsteady because it, does, it wasn't because you you you've been trained by so much drama to expect the worst. Like it, yeah. it, the 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 guy who taught her to play chess, I was like, oh, child abuse. You know, right. like I don't know what happened to me that I've seen so many of these go that like they always make that choice. And it's always sort of a bummer when you are watching something and you think like, wow, they made every in every decision that they could to make this the worst possible thing for me to watch. Like it's torture. <laughs> right. And so you were sort of waiting for the punch and it didn't yeah. come. It actually, yeah. you were surprised by the kindness of people. Movie Booksmart did that to me too. Yeah. Uh, you expected yeah. the kids to be just awful to each other and then they were surprisingly kind. And you're like, oh, I that agree. was sort of I my experience. I love that about Booksmart. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's, it's it, more it, nuanced and more real to yeah. life. And the, the, the pain that comes with living is not necessarily these huge Herculean tragedies, but it still hurts. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that's interesting is Alma is a supporting role and everyone else has gotten a lot of attention. A lot of the character actors in this have made such an impression um, compared Mm -hmm. to just the star, who is wonderful, by the way. Um, Why do you think people are connecting to this role? Well, I think part of what was fun to play was really the relationship with Beth because it is really complex. It is not an instant, easy relationship. It is much more hard won. The two women are so, they're both so blocked and they both come from a place of so much pain. And yet 
what they build to the the kind of love story between them, this mother daughter sort of weird love story that does kind of emerge throughout the series. I think it feels more real because it is really hard to get there, and it's not pure. It's not just easy or pure love. It's just kind. Of, it it has kind of strings attached at times. It feels like um, sort of a marriage of convenience at times. It's got all of these different layers to it, which then by the time it actually becomes something real, they really trust each other because they've actually been there for each other in a real way. And they enjoy each other and they serve purposes for each other that nobody else has ever served. They need each other in such a major way. You think it's going to go down this sort of stage mother thing, exploitative of the younger woman, but it's not. Almost resourceful. You know, she's a woman who has never had a career and didn't get to make money of her own. And she finds herself really at a point where she could be in trouble financially. So she's not, it's not like she doesn't see the opportunity in front of her and take advantage of it. She sees that they could make money doing this. And there's something really exciting and fun to that. But just because she is resourceful and does that doesn't mean there isn't also genuine affection and love between them. It doesn't mean that she doesn't actually feel that motherly pride, which I loved playing. I loved that feeling of that she could feel so much pride for watching Beth succeed in these ways that she couldn't even imagine was possible for a young woman. That was just so fun. What would have happened to Alma if Beth hadn't entered her life? I think she was wilting away. She was going to wilt away alone in her house, covered in dust, kind of just fade away into the world. And there's something about Beth that reignites her liveliness. She kind of reminds her to wake up. And it was such a fun arc to play because in an alive place is not how all characters go. You know, it was a it was a fun evolution of a character to get her to kind of wake up throughout the series. Let's talk about the power dynamics on a set, a director, a star, a supporting actor. You've said a lot of directors are afraid of actors, and one of your superpowers is that you were an actor. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that and how you operate, how the, the, the various parts of a, of a set operate. For me, the best part about making movies is the collaboration that gets to happen on set. I love it. I love working with actors. I only work with actors who will let themselves be directed who understand and believe in the collaboration in the way that I do. Um, Not all actors do. (laughs) Some actors want to come to set and kind of just do their thing. Some of those are fabulous actors, but they're not the actors who I like to work with. Part of what's so amazing about Tom Hanks is he's this enormous movie star who believes entirely in the director and their vision and that his job is to come to set and do what the director needs for their vision. And he had so much respect for me and it made me feel, I never felt like I was in a power struggle with anybody on my sets because I'm always working with people who we have, you know, there's always a period of time, I think, where, especially when I was starting out and people couldn't look at any of my work. Well, they push uh, on your power to see. Yeah, they want to know, do you actually know what you're talking about? Do you have any sense of a vision for this? But the thing about my first movie was I had been working on it for eight or nine years by the time we went into production, nobody knew that movie inside and out more than me. I had written 85 drafts of that script. It was in my bones. It was my total passion. It was everything I could. So there was no, you know, as soon as an actor would sit down with me and we'd start to talk about their character, they would go, oh, okay, you're in this. I get it. And then the power stuff is gone. Well, in that power struggle, many directors don't accept actors 
points of view, too. And that's something that I think comes out of insecurity. If a director is not willing to hear an actor's perspective and recognize that an actor has to understand a character from the inside out, I think that has to do with director's insecurity. If you're secure as a director, you can trust that an actor might come to you and say, you know, I have this idea and it might be better, you know, and you can say, okay, yeah. Or you can also, a hard part is when an actor comes to you and says they have an idea and it's a big actor or it's somebody really cool and you have to be like, no. I don't think that's going to work for the scene. When you were working on Queen's Gambit, you collaborated a little bit with Scott Frank. Did he ask for your opinion? He asked for my opinion often, and I would give my opinion, but I did my damnedest to not backseat direct, overstep right. and backseat direct. Um, there was like, like when? What did you change? Well, give me something you've changed in that. In the show? Yeah. Okay, I'll give you a tiny thing. Tiny. But this thing. isn't really me changing something. This was the type of thing an any actor would do, which is. I have a line where Beth and I are talking after she's lost a match and I say, I know something about losing. And she says, I bet you do. And the way it was written was that then she would get up and walk away. And I would say to myself, essentially, and now you do too. And I asked Scott, can I just say it to her? And he was like, oh, yeah. That was a great moment. It's a powerful moment to kind of you know, she lobs an insult at me and for me to actually lob it right back in her face and her, she takes it. Um, well, it was also wisdom. It wasn't just an insult. It's wisdom. Right. It's wisdom that has come with age and pain. And it's also this moment where I'm like, we're really family. So one of the things you said recently was one of my worries when I first became a director is that people wouldn't take me seriously because I was an actor. Yeah. And you also said acting was part of a bigger machine. I wanted to be more in control of the bigger <laughs> machine. It's a tricky thing. <laughs> Part of my issue is I look pretty young. I tend to dress like a teenager, like I wear jeans and like hoodies. And I don't... You don't look like Michael Mann, but No, I don't show up <laughs> with a beret and a black turtleneck or a baseball cap. And like, I don't think I'm very intimidating. I, I wish I was a little bit more intimidating sometimes. And I actually had one of my longtime collaborators, Ann Carey, who's a wonderful producer who worked with me on my first two movies, uh... <laughs> she made some comment where I was lamenting that at one point. I said, men can grow beards and they just immediately seem older and like that they know what they're doing. Women don't have anything like that. And she looked at me very dryly and said, well, you could dress more like an adult. <laughs> <laughs> and that's part of why I love Anne Carey because yeah. she's so cuts to the chase. But and I, I, I was recommend like, sunglasses. I recommend yeah, sunglasses. I was like, oh, you had that one in the chamber. I think at this point, I've done enough that I, I no longer really worry about that anymore. I don't feel like I have to dress a certain way or do anything in order for people to know I'm in charge. Take you seriously on the set. Yeah. Or take me seriously. I mean, the easiest way to be taken seriously is have somebody like Tom Hanks call you boss and show you an incredible amount of reverence. Well, he is the world's nicest man, so. He is, but he didn't have to call me boss or Chris Cooper. I, not every actor does that. Not every actor calls you boss. I've had one actor who called me ma'am. And I was like, I think that's taking away from my authority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was like a 20 year old actor. And I, Ooh, I really didn't like being called ma'am on set, but yeah, there's, I worried about it more in the beginning, I think, but then I just hire people who are nice and aren't going to treat me like that. You know? We'll be back in a minute. 
If you like this interview and want to hear others, hit subscribe. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Jane Goodall, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Mariel Heller after this break. This podcast is supported by Merge. Planning on adding integrations to your product in 2024? Merge can help. Merge's API allows your developers to integrate once to offer hundreds of product integrations across key software categories. Merge maintains your integrations for you and provides tooling to make it easy for your customer success team to manage your integrations without engineering. Go to merge.dev hardfork to learn more about Merge and to get $5,000 off your choice of an annual plan. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Many people felt that you were snubbed for the best director for yeah. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is about yeah. Mr. Rogers. And can you ever forgive me? I mean, it was kind of two years in a row of that. Yeah. You said about your Oscar snub quote, now I see how this system works and why this isn't going to change anytime soon. How do you feel now? And what did you learn about the system you didn't know before? I don't know. I guess there's a feeling, a naive feeling that things are supposed to be fair, that the best things are supposed to win. If you just perform well enough. Yeah, if yeah. you just do a good enough job that, um, I mean, I think that's just part of the lesson of growing up, right? It's a self-perpetuating machine where, you know, if we've made movies for a hundred years about white, cis, hetero men, we're going to all somewhere subconsciously associate those characters as our heroes. And, that goes for directors too. And when I made Can You Ever Forgive Me, I guess I just realized there was this like, okay, I made a small indie character movie where the two lead actors got nominated for Oscars for their performances. Mm-hmm. This is Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant. Yeah. The greatest guy. And I realized, oh, when men make movies like that, it's like this auteur genius thing. You, you drag know? the performance out of them. That's yeah. Amazing. yeah. And then this movie, it was like, I, the movie got nominated, not just for a million Oscars, but for BAFTAs and WGA awards and SAG awards mm-hmm. and blah, 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 on and on and on and on. And I got nominated for nothing. Right. And it was like the movie directed itself. Yeah. And then you hate yourself for wanting to win. And yeah. then you're like, yeah. oh God, I don't even want to be part of this contest. Yeah. I don't want to be pitted artist to artist. That's not why we're making this stuff. Mm-hmm. It all feels gross. 
So has that changed at all, do you think? I mean, there are, the Hollywood is going to change drastically, especially post-pandemic. Things, well, I, these I, studios I are falling apart. More yeah, I don't know anything. what, I don't know what movie making is going to look like in the next few years. I do think this will probably be the year that it changes and that maybe a woman gets nominated. I, not that no woman has been nominated, but I do think a woman will probably be nominated this year. Maybe it'll be my friend Chloe Zhao who made Nomadland, or maybe it'll be Regina King. I don't know. I just think it's exciting that there's a chance that more women will be recognized this year and that it'll be, it'll start to just become the norm and not be such a story. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the bummer, right? Um, so when you think about if it's harder to be a, a female actor, or a female director, uh, which one do you think it is? Because director, 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 it's harder to be a director. Be- way harder. Why? In every way. Well, first of all, it's just been done for so much longer that there are female stars and that there are female actors on sets. That's just, it's, everybody knows what that looks like. I don't know that that's just, okay. But it is very hard to be a female actor in that, ugh, the toll on actors having to worry about their looks or their weight or their skin or their whatever, that is the worst. So I feel terrible in many ways for female actors because that is just, it's a torture in itself. You also said a lot of the characters are vapid and not three-dimensional. Is one of the reasons you kind of yeah. moved along. Yeah. How does that change? Did you face that? When you were doing acting roles, finding acting roles or discrimination? Yeah, I found it. No, I just found it really frustrating that there weren't like juicy real roles. Everybody would kind of say to me, even when I was like 23, people would be like, oh man, when you're 60, you're going to get to play like Lady M. Then you're going to have some real, you know, Carol Churchill roles. You're going to get some real meaty roles, but you got to wait till you're 60. I was like, <laughs> I don't want to wait till I'm 60 to have like a good role that feels actually meaty. So in that way, I do think it, it is, it's really hard to be a female actor, but being a female director, I think just comes with so many landmines that you can't quite anticipate. When you're paid for directing compared to male counterparts, and I'll give an example, Hollywood Reporter did some number crunching three years ago and Ridley Scott reportedly earned 10 to $12 million for Alien Covenant. Patty Jenkins, who directed Wonder Woman, which was very good, got a million dollars. Now she's going to make $8 million for the sequel. Good for her. Wonder Woman 1984, but making her the highest paid female director, which isn't even close to Ridley Scott. How do you deal with that in Hollywood? I deal with it really easily because I'm married to a male director. This is Yoma Taconi of Lonely yeah, Island. Yeah. Yeah. So every time I've gotten a quote, I've gone back to Yorma and been like, what did you get offered for this size movie? And then I go to my agents and I go, Yorma was offered this for blah, blah, blah. So why am I not being offered this for blah, blah, blah? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like I have my own little... <laughs> Checking. Check. Yeah. Uh, Does it work? Yeah. What do they do? Oh. Uh, oops. I mean, luckily my agents are on my side about that. And they're like, great, this, we'll go back with that. It's worked across the board where it's given me the confidence to ask for certain things that I wouldn't ask for otherwise, because... Can you tell me what is the disparity usually when that happens, when you bring back his salary compared to yours? Um, probably like 30 or 40%. There's some legal thing where we're not allowed to have quotes anymore, but for a long time, directors... The way it worked was you were always working toward a quote. So somebody would go, oh, their quote is blah, blah, blah. They work for this yeah, much money, right? Million bucks. Right, just make right. It up. This is your quote. Once you've been paid something, that's what you get paid. And so you're always kind of trying to build up to that. You know, I'm sure Ridley Scott 
built up his quote over many years to get to that point. But if women are getting 30 to 40 percent less, how do they rationalize that? That's like putting myself into the head of, I think anybody is going to try to pay people less money. That's just always going to be the thing. I do think there's a weird stigma where people probably think that female directors are a risk, or that's what I've heard people say, which, I mean, it makes me insane. But For what reason have you heard? Uh, I think people just feel like they watch a male director make one little indie that comes out of Sundance, and they go like, I see potential in that kid. <laughs> and then they watch a female director come out of Sundance and make one little indie, and they go, that was excellent. Uh-huh. I'll wait to see her next movie, and then I'll decide if she should get another job. And if she's got, if that was a one-off, or if it was staying power, you know? Will you leverage your newfound on-screen star power to get new projects greenlit? Do you think? <laughs> I'm Alma, you know. No, no. I don't know. You I don't know how think... popular the Queen's Gambit is, do you? I mean, Are you it's aware? crazy popular. Everybody yeah. in my life has no, reached out to me. No, crazy popular. I recommend it's it. Crazy I've popular. got hundreds of thank yous for I it. I sort of really didn't expect it. No offense to Scott or the show, but like a show about chess and a, it's beautiful. It's charming. It's entertaining. It's so beautiful. It's but I did not think it was going to be like the hottest show that's ever happened. I mean, it's really, really wild. It's delightful is what it is. And that's I why. I know. I think Scott just did such a beautiful job. And I can like brag about the show because I didn't direct it because I don't feel that type of ownership over it. I can just be like, isn't it so good? <laughs> so you're not going to use that? You don't think it'll give use you Use it to leverage for yeah. power? Why not? No, but I do think in some weird way... Um, the sort of game that we've talked about of like Hollywood, it will be helpful that people have seen my face and I exist in the world. As a director, nobody knew what I looked like or uh, there's no like um, kind of persona there. And I was sort of really nervous when I took on the role where I didn't want it to make it that now that I did this acting role, it was going to make people think I wasn't a serious director or not like, I just didn't want it to muddy that. That was my biggest fear. So your success, you don't want your success to get in the way of your success, essentially. Sort of. I don't want my (laughs) success to get in the way of my power. I see. Ah. Yeah. I I don't want anybody to think of me as less of a serious director because I took on this role as an actor. Let me ask you about the thing you just did and what you're working on next. You just directed Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me. It was a stage play. It's it's a stage play about the Constitution and it's wonderful. It's one of my yes. favorite. It's not even really just about the Constitution. No, it's, it's about, really about Heidi's life and family. Exactly, and, about her life. Reading, making speeches about the Constitution, yeah. but it, it's wonderful. So whenever you saw her show, which I think had 180 some performances. Yeah. Um, you filmed it during the Kavanaugh hearings. Is that right? We didn't or, film it during the Kavanaugh oh. hearings, but Heidi talked a lot about what it felt like to perform during the Kavanaugh hearings. That's when we, I saw it, yeah. We filmed it in its last week in Broadway, last week on Broadway, last August. My goal with helping Heidi to bring that piece to a larger audience was that I wanted it to come out before the election and that I felt like it was such an important, you know, it makes you look in a very deep, nuanced way at our Constitution, not from just a knee-jerk kind of clickbaity way, but in a real deep way, thoughtful way. And we could not have anticipated that it was going to come out during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings and that Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have died. It was awful and made it more poignant in some weird way. And it kind of came out in the moment. I think it needed to come out. How has Hollywood changed in the last four years of Trump or entertainment? I'm not sure, but I don't know that I would have felt like I needed to make a movie about Mr. Rogers during an Obama presidency, for example. There was something about 
the period of time that we've been in, the dark period of time that we've been in where I thought, God, to have an example of masculine strength that comes from empathy and kindness and emotion instead of brute, bullish force. It just felt so important to me to see a hero, a masculine hero who their heroic power comes in their innate sensitivity. That just seemed really important to me. So if you said you could only make uh, Mr. Rogers' name in the Trump era and Diary of a Teenage Girl in the Obama era, what can you make now? What is your feeling of the era now? (sighs) I don't know. That's my my question right now. Um, I mean, obviously, I think Queen's Gambit shows you never know what's going to feel somehow like the most timely thing, like a 60s period drama about chess somehow in the middle of a Trump, in, in the middle of an election it's cycle smart, feels like the most smart, poignant thing. Yeah, but who, I mean. People are sick of stupid. I agree with that. I think, I don't think I'll ever make anything that, even though I said in that quote, you know, sometimes we need pure escapism. I don't think that's going to be the movie I make. I don't, I, that's not something I'm really interested in. I, so no superhero movies for you? I don't think so. It would have to be substantive. But, you know, look, I'm friends with Ryan Coogler. I thought he did something oh, with Black, Black Panther, Panther was that substantive. was incredible. So yeah. you can't never say never. It can be done well, but it has to be done well. So your next project is called Five Women. It's based mm-hmm. on This American Life episode about a serial sexual harasser in the workplace. Why did you choose this project? It's a very complex, in the same way that I loved Alma and I love really complex character studies, it is that one line makes you think it's about one thing, but it's a much more complex study about workplace harassment, a very mundane, very run-of-the-mill, like not some big fancy famous person harassing somebody, but a much more just like regular workplace harassment scenario and different women, different characters, how they respond, how their history, how what they've been taught to expect from men, what they've been taught to expect from themselves, how it affects how they respond in that moment. And so we've been working on that and writing the scripts for it. And when the world feels safe and I don't have to abandon my children, I will make that. But you will not make movies until you can have sets that are open and not bubble. (sighs) Probably not. No way. When everyone else is binging on Queen's Gamut, what are you binging on? Speaking of your family. Well, I'm loving the new season of The Crown. Yes. It's just... Diana. It was a total shock to me that it came out. It felt like a present. It just arrived. I was like, oh my gosh, the new season of The Crown is here. This is amazing. Yeah. I was so thrilled about that. Just so you know, it's now number one on Netflix. It's really oh, good, though. God it's... damn it. No, I'm just kidding. I don't care. <laughs> Let me uh, ask you, though, in closing, the punk who called you ma'am. Any idea where he is now? I shouldn't call him a punk. The young actor <laughs> who called you ma'am. I think he might have just been Southern, and it was more of a thing of actually thinking that. But, man, it bothered me. I don't know where he is now. I'm sure he's having a great career. Yeah. Yeah. It was just funny. I just couldn't stand it. Under any circumstances, do you want to be called ma'am? No. Alma might. Oh, Alma would love to be called ma'am, as long as it wasn't by a young man who was right. attractive. But <laughs> I don't. No. I answer to dude way more than ma'am. Mariel, thank you so much on that note. I really appreciate your time. I want you to get back to your kids. I know thank how you. you feel. And congratulations on your baby and everything. Thank you so much. You too. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. 
It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba Elarbani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Paula Schumann, with music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Renan Borelli, Liriel Higa, and Kathy Tu. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, like the Sicilian Defense, download a podcast app like Stitcher or Google Podcasts, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. You'll get episodes every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. 